Last year at one of our large outreach events that we have on our campus from time to time, a small driving accident occurred. You could call it a fender bender. One of our church members was backing out of a tight parking space and accidentally bumped into another car. And the driver got out and tried to assess the damage, but it was dark, but they couldn't see anything, anything of significance. And so they went home. But when they got home, they were astonished at the damage that had happened to, to their car. And then they began to panic at what happened to the other car. They felt sure that it was worse than they had thought. And so they immediately reached out to one of our pastors to try to help connect the person with the car that was hit so they could bring about restoration, restitution. But while the person was at home looking at their car and before they knew the identity of the family that they hit or the car that they hit, the family of the car that was hit was being notified here of the accident. One of our off-duty police officers and one of our dedicated security team members had somehow witnessed the incident and they had found the family of the car that was hit. And so the officer went up to the family, told them what had happened, and he said this to them, we can treat this like a hit and run. Since that person didn't stay, I can file a complaint. We can start uh, the process for you to press charges. Would you like to press charges? Now, that seems like a relatively incidental question, but I want to argue this morning that the answer to that question matters. It matters more than we think it does when it comes to dealing with matters of potential conflict among the body of Christ. And the family of the vehicle that was hit looked at the officer and said, no, we do not want to press charges. And here's the reason why. Because it was a church function, a church outreach event. And because they did not know who hit their car, they didn't want to do anything to prohibit those people or that person from coming back to our church or are standing in between them and hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what's even more incredible. When the families finally got together, the offended party, the injured party, did not even want to receive reimbursement, but the one who had injured them, the offender, was adamant that they receive something. And the testimony of that was even shocking to the police officer. The police officer said to the family, you're, you're nicer than I would be, and you're certainly different than most of the people that I encounter in this situation. But here's what I love about the story. I love that the, the injured family had concern about the gospel. They had a concern about the witness of this church and how they handled an offense. They wanted to make sure that that family, whoever it was, could hear the gospel and that they would not stand in the way of it. For them, the gospel was more important than a bumper. And it seems like they had been reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6 which is our passage today. So the Bible teaches us that conflict is a reality of living in a broken and fallen world. The possibility of conflict is a consequence of sin. Our broken relationship with God, it leads to a, a broken relationship with one another. You can read from Genesis 3 onward in the Old Testament as a testimony to that biblical truth. But the Bible also teaches us that the work of Christ in his gospel seeks to undo every effect of sin. 
Christ's work enables us to be set right in our relationship with God and as a consequence, set right in our relationship with one another. And one of our callings as the church, as a set apart people, a set apart people for the glory of God is to evidence gospel reconciliation, to display how the gospel leads us to overcome what naturally divides from minor fender benders to the, the most difficult of circumstances. As you can imagine, Corinth was failing at this task and their set apartness. And so Paul feels compelled to write to them, to challenge them, to remember who they are called to be in light of the gospel, who they must be for the sake of the gospel. And it's an important word for us today as well, Bayleaf. It seems like in the world we live in today, we are one word or one decision away from conflict. And how we respond in that conflict matters. Here's our main idea this morning from our text. The first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 6. Our response to conflict inside the church reveals our belief about the gospel. It reveals our belief about the power of the gospel to overcome our relational brokenness. And it reveals our belief about the importance of our unified gospel witness as a people. So let's hear the challenge from Paul together this morning, prayerfully asking God to help us see our responsibility to live at peace with one another in the church because in Jesus we are living in peace with God. Here's what God's word says to us. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that, that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no, no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud and you do this even to your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, no men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, there's a lawsuit, a lawsuit unfolding in the city of Corinth. That's the, the source of the conflict that Paul is addressing here in the first part of 1 Corinthians. And we're not given a lot of specifics about the nature of the lawsuit, but we can piece together some details as we read the letter. Somehow, one church member has defrauded another church member, and it likely is involving a piece of property or some finances. 
but the substance is really immaterial. The big deal is that the conflict between these two brothers in Christ is spilling over into the public. And that public spillover is threatening the witness, the gospel witness of the Corinthian church. And so Paul wants to address some gospel implications of this public move. And it's interesting how he begins. He doesn't begin by addressing the two individuals who are involved in the conflict. He begins with a charge to the church. And you can see that in verses one to six. This is a substance of what Paul is writing here to begin this chapter. And it seems to be a continuation of the thought that he began last week, wherein the church was allowing for a heinous sin to go unchecked because of a a misapplication of the grace of God. Here, they are allowing another threat to their witness to go unchecked. They're allowing and perhaps advocating for these brothers to go to a secular court, likely an unjust court, who often favored the wealthy over the less wealthy, courts that give no consideration to the things of God, nor the witness of the church to settle what in Paul's view is a very minor issue, a minor dispute. So we ask them, church, why on earth would you let this ugly dispute spill out into the world? Why would you go before a judge whose lifestyle and ethics you question in order to find justice? And the questions and the appeal that he's making here, the charge that he's making here, he grounds in scripture. He references Daniel 7, 22, Revelation 3, 21, as, as well as other Jewish apocalyptic beliefs to remind the church that one day all of us who are in Christ will rule with Christ. And we don't know a great deal about our role on the day of judgment, but it is clear here from Paul's writing that we will have a role. We will even participate in bringing judgment upon all those angels who rebelled against God with Satan. We see that in verse three. And here's what Paul says. In light of that reality, if God is going to allow us to play a role on the greatest day of judgment in human history, if we're gonna play a role And the the greatest act of judgment, then don't you think God would let us play a role in this lesser act of judgment? Don't you think that we would have some wisdom to help these brothers walk forward and reconciliation? And that's when he hits home his point. In verse five, he appeals to their own claim about wisdom. Remember the whole whole time they've been saying, we're wise. We've got a, a greater wisdom. And Paul says, if you're so wise, If you have so much wisdom as you claim, why are you turning to the courts to settle something that is easily settled before the word of God? It is shameful, shameful for you to allow something like this to happen. And what a claim. Paul, no doubt, has words for these brothers. And we're gonna get to that, but his primary concern is with the church that they let this situation get to where it has gotten. Brothers and sisters of Bayleaf, members of this body, hear me this morning. We have a covenant responsibility to one another. This is the gospel implication that Paul wants to help the church see then and today. 
we have made a promise to one another in gathering together as this body to help each other walk in faithfulness and corporately testify to the gospel. And we should take any threat to that witness seriously. And while we are not called to judge those outside of the church, we saw that last week in chapter 5, verse 12, we're to offer them the gospel. We are called to hold each other accountable. And this implication builds upon something that Pastor Patrick mentioned last week. This passage in Paul's writing here in 5 and 6, it assumes church membership. It is testifies to the fact that we need each other, that we need to be accountable to each other, especially, especially in those moments when we are offended or grieved. Because it's hard to see beyond ourselves. It's hard to see our entitlement to thinking that we deserve to be proven right. It's hard to see beyond our injury to what matters the most. And godly brothers and sisters can and should help. Let me just say a quick word here of clarification about the particular kind of offense that Paul is addressing. The kind of issue that Paul is addressing here, he says, is minor. And it is civil in nature, not criminal. And this distinction is really important because a lot of well-meaning believers in the history of the church have tried to sweep things under the rug that should and must come to light. And so I want you to hear from me, if anything ever happens here that's criminal in nature, we will 100% report it. We must. We must, for the sake of the witness of this church. Any abuse will be reported. But if it's minor, if it is civil in nature, dealing with property, money, or even just reputation, words said in anger or haste with one another, we need to think about this differently. We need to consider and ask the question that Paul is asking here. How seriously are we committed to protecting the gospel witness that we have been given as a community of believers? Sometimes to protect the gospel witness, we must go public. But sometimes we need to trust the wisdom that God has entrusted to the church around his word and seek reconciliation where it is possible. Because in this case, it seems like the men were more concerned about material things, their own property or their money, rather than the gospel. And so Paul moves now from a charge to the whole church to a rebuke of brothers in verses seven to 10. And here's how he begins in verse seven. You've already lost One of you has lost something. The other one's trying to prevent more loss. But let me just tell you, the way you've handled this is already a loss. The lawsuit itself is a loss for the gospel. Because think about what the Corinthians are seeing. When you come with your case to the Bema seat. Now, I've actually been able to go to Corinth and I've seen the Bema seat. And it is right in the middle of the market. On purpose. I think part of it was a word of warning to everyone as they're going about their daily business to make sure that they walk in an upright way, but it was also a form of entertainment. They didn't have Netflix or cable back then, so they would go and watch. Watch these disputes unfold. Who doesn't like to watch a train wreck, right? They would come. And Paul says, think about what they're witnessing. As you, brother, go against you, brother, knowing that you claim the name of Christ. They see two men 
treating each other just like everyone else. And so he begins by addressing the offended party. And he says, to the one who was injured, it would be better to simply suffer the wrong. It would be better for you to be defrauded than to offer such a a witness against the gospel in verse seven. That's strong language, isn't it? You suffer injustice so the name of Christ is protected. It makes us think about what we value and what we, we hope in. And then to the offender, the brother who defrauded the other, Paul writes some even stronger words, kind of bringing to completion a thought he's been unfolding in the whole of chapter five and chapter six. If you are a thief, if you're a swindler, if you're greedy and you remain in a state of unrepentance, if you can injure your brother and not care, then do you really know the gospel? Do you really know what it means to have found reconciliation with God And know the calling to live in reconciliation with one another. Because of your unconfessed sin. Because of your lack of repentance and desire to set things right. You are in danger of being considered outside the kingdom of God. For all of eternity. Just like Paul says the sexually immoral. The adulterers. Idolaters. Men who practice homosexuality and drunkards. So if you have offended. Repent. Repent and seek restoration. Seek to make it right as evidence of the gospel. And this last part of Paul's message here to the individuals really stuck with me this week. Isn't it interesting that Paul would include something that he says is so trivial and minor in this list of sins? It's stunning to me. Is taking advantage of someone not paying them back what they are owed, holding a grudge against someone? Is that worthy to be mentioned in the list of some of these other things that Paul mentions? It's shocking because we seem to have a hierarchy of sin in our own mind, our understanding, our practice as a church. And there's no doubt that the sin that was addressed last week was heinous in nature. But we need to remember that all sin is dangerous. All sin threatens the witness of this body and we should be concerned with all of it because we want to show the full effect of the gospel upon our lives. Because friends, we do not live in sin any longer. We live in light of the work of Christ. And that's why Paul ends the way that he does here in verse 11. I'm so glad that he does. He ends by pointing the church back to the gospel. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you were. Who you were. Oh, friends, can we just rejoice this morning, church, and what Paul writes here in verse 11? Let me just read for you 9 through 11 again, just so you can feel the weight and the release of what Paul is writing here. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. The sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But listen to this. Are y'all ready for a little 
gospel this morning, a little good news to wash over your ears this morning. Such were some of you. Isn't that good news? Does it say some, such are some of you? It's past tense, right? Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the spirit of God, by the power of the gospel, friends. You used to be unrighteous. You used to be sexually immoral and greedy. You used to delight, get drunk on the temporary pleasures of this world. But by the power of the gospel, by the work of Christ and the power of the spirit, you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified through the work of Christ. Think about This morning, the words from the prophet Isaiah to get your blood pumping. Come, let us reason together. Though our sins are like scarlet, they have been washed, what? Whiter than snow. Though they are red like crimson, they have become white like wool. That's what our God has done for us. And don't you ever forget it. Don't you ever forget it. We got to remember it because we got to look like it. The gospel transforms us and that transformation must define us if we are truly in Christ. We gotta look set apart. We gotta look different in order to point people to the work of Jesus, to help them see the power of the gospel. If we handle conflict the same way those outside of Christ do, then we have missed the reach of the gospel. So let's think, let's think practically about this, all right? Because Paul's message here is incredibly practical. What are some ways that Paul's challenge to us or to the church then should challenge us today? Let me offer some, some very practical biblical applications to us as the people of God. And let me begin by addressing brothers and sisters who are even now in conflict. And if you're not in conflict, just wait. We got a bunch of broken, sinful people around here, right? We're beautiful, but we're broken. That's going to happen. So when conflict arises, seek biblical reconciliation for the sake of the gospel. Seek biblical reconciliation for the sake of the gospel. If you are the offended party, go to the offender. And go with the goal of reconciliation in mind. Don't go in anger. Don't go with the goal of being proven right. If that's your goal, don't go. You're not ready. But when your goal is reconciliation, when your goal is restoration, and you are driven by a heart of love for your brother and sister, you're driven by a heart of love for God and the gospel, then you seek restoration in the process that's outlined for us in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. God gave us this passage for a reason. He gave us a way to seek reconciliation when there is an injury, when there is an offense, and we should utilize it for the sake of this relationship for this body, but also the gospel. And if you are the offending party, engage. Meet with the person. So the only way this works, and the reason why sometimes we go outside the church is because the parties don't agree to meet and to counsel and to work through things that sometimes are really messy. 
But if we believe the gospel and we believe in the authority of scripture to guide us as a people, then we should engage as God calls us to engage. So if you find yourself in a a moment of offense, seek restoration on both sides. Let me also say a word. Let me say this word. If you find yourself involved in a lot of conflict, you might wanna go before the Lord. Is the fruit of the spirit emanating from you? Or is there some sin in your life that is causing you to be at odds with brothers and sisters in Christ a lot? It should be rare, not commonplace for us to find ourselves in these situations. If we're walking in Jesus, the power of Jesus, if we're, if we're attempting and desiring to walk and live at peace with everyone, especially those in the body, then we shouldn't be the one riling up people all the time. Let's seek reconciliation for the sake of the gospel because we need to be committed to engaging differently. Here's what our world says. Our world says, forget the other people. If there's an offense, cancel them. The relationship is over. Or I'm entitled to what I lost and I will do everything possible to get it back. Here's what they also say. If I suffer at all, I want you to suffer more. Not just an eye for an eye, but I want to pour up on you revenge. But I hope that we see how the gospel calls us to live differently because God was the offended party and he forgave our offense. More than that, he pursued us by sending his son so that we, what we could not set right, he set right in the gospel. Let us live like that. That's what happened in our parking lot last year. And may it continue to happen for the glory of God. Amen? Application two. Now to the whole church. Let's take our corporate witness seriously. Conflict will happen. We do not see things the same sometimes. Sometimes we're going to back into a car. But how we deal with the offense matters. How we respond corporately matters. We need to hold each other accountable. Do you know that we have a church covenant? We adopted it again this past year when we updated our constitution and bylaws. And I just want to read a portion of it to remind us what we have committed ourselves to as members of this body. It flows from scripture. It's not building. It's not, it's not an addition to scripture. It's just a reflection of what scripture has already said about the nature of our gathering and our membership. Here's the church covenant adopted by us, agreed to by us as a people. This is Article 3 of the Constitution. I'm not going to read the whole thing, just a part. Here's how it begins. Is it on the screen? Here it is. Y'all can read it with, read it with me. Having been, as we trust, bought by divine grace to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and to give ourselves wholly to him, we do now solemnly and joyfully covenant with each other to walk together in him with brotherly love to his glory as our common savior and Lord. We commit individually and corporately to seek first Christ's kingdom and his righteousness rather than our own self-interest. We pledge to make every effort in the power of the spirit to live in a manner worthy of our calling understanding that this local church is meant to be a testimony to the power of the gospel of Jesus in his kingdom. 
And in light of that commitment, we promise to do a few things. We promise to gather together in regular worship. We promise to submit to the scripture and the the pastors that have been brought to us. We promise to conduct our families according to the pattern laid out in scripture. And then we get to this promise. We promise to exhort and if occasion requires, admonish one another, one another, according to the 18th chapter of Matthew in the spirit of meekness, considering ourselves lest we also be tempted. We recognize as declare in the ordinance of baptism that we have been buried with Christ and raised again. Therefore, we will hold each other accountable to walking in that newness of life after Christ's example. Here's how it ends. May the God of peace, who brought again from from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant and the power of the Holy Spirit, make us perfect in every good work to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. It's good stuff. Did you hear the commitment though? That we're willing to engage with one another and promote unity for the sake of the gospel. Because here's what typically happens when there is an offense. When a friend comes to us with an offense, oftentimes they're seeking to grow their group of witnesses against the other. They want you to join in the conflict. They want you to be offended like they are offended. But friends, we are called to more than that. We're called to encourage unity for the sake of the gospel. We're called to encourage reconciliation. And I just wanna wanna say, let me brag on our church for a minute. Just this past week, I've heard of multiple ways where there's been potential for conflict and members of our church have been engaging in this way for the sake of the gospel. Let us continue to do that, friends. Let's also ask ourselves, would we receive that kind of counsel well? If we go to a friend with our complaint or our offense and they say, hey, then then why don't you go and talk to that brother? Why don't you go and talk to that sister? I'll go with you. Not to add on, not to add fuel to the fire, but as a witness to help bring about reconciliation. Would we receive that? Would we be encouraged by that, that our brother or sister would have the love for us and the love of this body to say, let's go get it right. Don't sit and stew on it. It's just gonna grow. You're gonna get madder and madder about it. Let's engage for the sake of our of the gospel. It's our responsibilities as brothers and sisters to love each other this way, to speak the truth in love. That's why, by the way, church discipline ends with the whole church speaking. But let's not get there. Let's help each other for the sake of the gospel. Will we be the kind of community that protects the witness of the church? Application three to the Christian. Allow the future promises of God to direct your present actions. Let's allow the future promises of God to to affect our present actions. The only way that you will seek resolution, restoration, and moments of conflict, and the only way that we, as brothers and sisters, will call each other to, to seek reconciliation is if we keep our eyes on the promise of Christ. Jesus is coming, and we want to be found faithful 
More than that, he's going to allow us to join him in ruling and reigning. And while that's, part of that's a not yet reality, some of it isn't already. And so let's engage in the wisdom of God over these minor things for the sake of the gospel. Let's be the aroma of Christ and how we handle conflict because of who we are in Christ. And can I just say another word here? I would also urge you to consider the gospel witness implications that Paul is mentioning here, even with issues that happen outside the church. Because our gospel witness is always at stake. Now listen, sometimes we have to act. Thankfully, our justice system today is a little bit better than it was in Corinth back then. And sometimes we have to act to protect our financial interests as a family or as a business. We have to go in order to court in order to protect our reputation if somebody defrauds us in that way. But let's also act with integrity and gospel awareness. Even when we feel compelled to go to court in civil disputes with those outside the church, let us resolve in every way possible to represent Jesus well. It always matters. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, can I just give you a little bit of good news from verse 11? Jesus is in the life-changing business. Isn't that good news? Oh, friends, listen. You may be here this morning or joining us online and you hear the list of the unrighteous in verses 9 and 10 and you say, that's me. Maybe, maybe you're walking in sexual immorality. Maybe... You've had a season of adultery. You've engaged in homosexual behavior. You're, you're, you've stolen. You're greedy. You're you, an alcoholic. You revile. You swindle. We could go on with other lists in the scripture, but you, you see yourself as identifying with that sin. I want you to hear this morning the promise of the gospel. That doesn't have to be who you are anymore. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. Your, your tense can change from are a sinner to were a sinner now sanctified by God's grace. In just a minute, we'll have some pastors here in the, moment, in the, in the front who would love to pray with you, encourage you to help you know how to have that designation change. Yes, we still sin, but we are sanctified in Jesus and we would love for you to come in a place, in a, in a state of repentance and be reconciled to God so that you can live in reconciliation with others. Wherever you are, would you bow your heads? To the teaching of God's word. Our response to conflict inside the church reveals our belief about the gospel. Have you been reconciled with God through Christ? If not, today's the day. Come. If you have, are you living in reconciliation? If you've right now offended someone, would you go to them and seek reconciliation, restoration that you would not sleep tonight without reaching out in the hope there could be peace in that relationship for the sake of the gospel. If you're an injured party, would you pray about engaging for the sake of the gospel 
And if you need counsel, come and talk to us. We'd love to help you walk through this. Don't let it grow. That's what the enemy wants. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Let's extinguish it for the sake of the gospel. Church, let's take our our witness seriously. Let's encourage each other to walk in unity, even when there's difficulty. And let's delight in the fact that Jesus has come and will come. And we want to be found faithful. Father, would you help us respond in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you? May we look more like Jesus and act more like Jesus because of our time before your word today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You stand. Thank you for joining us this week at Bayleaf. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website at bayleaf.org.